I found that CEOs that are really good at weaving a tale of kind of maximum customer satisfaction or delighting the customer that know the numbers and can weave them into the story, that that matters a lot. Welcome to episode number 61 of the Balancing Act podcast. I'm Andy Tempty. Today, we've got Jason Palmer joining us as our final guest in the mini-series on the importance of building skill of financial acumen in individuals and in teams. Jason is general partner at New Markets Venture Partners and sits on the boards of numerous education and education technology companies. Thank you so much, Jason, for sharing your talents and insights with us today. Hey, really great to reconnect with you, Andy, and looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, and in full disclosure, uh, Jason and I uh, worked quite a long time ago at, at, at Kaplan together. It was uh, mm-hmm. uh, kind of the mid-2000s, late 2000s. Is that, do I have yeah, that right? Yeah, somewhere in the like 2007 to 12 range, something like yeah. that, plus or minus a year or two. <laughs> Yeah, we uh, we we uh, we had a a gentleman named Jim Rosenthal who we uh, both worked for, and uh, Jim, uh, I've I've got to have Jim on the show at some point. He would be a great guest, don't you think? <laughs> Definitely. I still play poker with Jim, and he's quite a hoot. <laughs> well, we, that that's what we need more of on this podcast: our our hoots. So, uh, anyway. <laughs> Uh, Jason, before we get started, we do this with all our guests. Uh, please tell our listeners your story. Sure. So my story is pretty simple. I grew up in upstate New York in a little town called Averill Park, and we had one blinking stoplight in our town, and it blinked nice. yellow in all four directions, didn't even have red. It was such a small cow town. And I was lucky enough to go to the University of Virginia for college, and I studied government there. Um, and then, uh, kind of a surprise to me and everybody else, I started a business my fourth year of college. Um, and I'll tell you a little bit about that later if you want to get into it. But that set me on a career of starting businesses. I served as a turnaround CEO at Kaplan when I worked with you, um, M&A, acquiring businesses, divesting businesses. And for the last decade, I have been an investor in businesses and haven't been in the CEO chair ever again. Um, and just love supporting CEOs and helping them build great companies. And that's kind of my my mission, especially in education and workforce technology. That's my focus area. That's awesome. I, I see in your notes that your father was an educator. My my dad, uh, both my mother and father uh, were, were educators during their career. What, what did your dad do? Uh, so my dad was a teacher, originally math and physics. And then he became a principal. He even was the principal at my high school. And we could have a whole podcast about that, (laughs) (laughs) which I don't want to do. Um, Exactly. And then after I went off to college, he ended up becoming a superintendent of Albany, New York public schools. And so that's a big part of how I am able to kind of code switch where I can work with business people in education and also with educators, because I talk the language of educators from having grown up in that house and I used to help my dad prepare for board meetings with the school board and make charts and graphs and nice. you know, more students going to college, more students taking AP courses. It's like in my DNA from growing up with dad. Ah, that's awesome. 
yeah, we, we could have all uh, that. That would be a great uh, podcast episode <laughs> of what it was like to have uh, d- dad be uh, be the principal while you're growing up. <laughs> You would think nice. it would keep me within the lines, but I, I color outside the lines a little bit. So there were some problems. Yeah. That's <laughs> awesome. So if, if you had to pick uh, one event in your life that was uh, just put rocket boosters uh, behind you in your career, what would that mm-hmm. be? Um, that would definitely be failing at my third business that I started. Um, first two businesses were pretty successful and I sold those businesses the third business, I raised $21 million of venture capital and I failed pretty spectacularly. Um, we lost all the money. We sold it for a million dollars kind of as scrap at the end. And after that, I thought I'm going to be a failed internet CEO for my whole life. And I, I went on kind of a, uh, you would call it like a roundabout or a walkabout in Alaska and Hawaii and the Western U.S. and was like, what am I going to do with my life? And During that time, I heard about these Princeton graduates that had been studied from 1976. This is a little bit of a longer story, but I think it's worth it, where in 1976, they asked Princeton graduates, what is your mission for your life? And they had everybody kind of fill out their answers. And now it's 2001, 25 years later, they check back to see what did these people achieve with their life? And the people that knew they were going to be married with two kids, had two kids, and the people that knew they wanted to uh, go into business, had gone into business or government. And these are Princeton grads. They all did pretty well with life. But the main takeaway of the research was the people that had more precise visions for their lives, like a 20, 25 year mission, achieved incredible things like becoming uh, assistant secretary of state or running a billion dollar company. And I thought I need a 20 or 25 year mission for my life too. So I actually used that time to create a 20-year mission for myself to work at the intersection of education, entrepreneurship, and technology and see if I could help lift a billion people out of poverty through that work. And that's been like, that's on my wall. That's actually like what I've been focused on since 2001. Um, and that that has really driven a lot of my career choices and uh, a lot of my successes and even some of the failures in life where I've reached for the stars and only got a moon or something like that. Well, that, that is a fantastic, uh, accelerant story and, uh, and, and such a wonderful, uh, segue, uh, by the time listeners are, uh, listening to this, uh, this podcast episode, on the andrewtempty.com website, uh, we will have a tool, a free tool for everybody to download on how to develop one's personal purpose, uh, which mm. is uh, very, very similar to that. Uh, that is very the, similar. The mission exercise. So yep. you, you had no idea that uh, nope. there was going <laughs> to be that serendipity there, but uh, uh, th- thank you for that uh, that built-in advertising. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. It's a a great exercise for sure. I actually have told a number of younger people because a lot of young people contacted me and say, how do I become a VC later in life? Or how do I work at the Gates Foundation? Like, what did you do? And my number one thing to tell them is always to create this 20 to 25 year mission for what you want to achieve with your life. And even if you don't achieve it, it gives you a real sense of purpose. And, you know, it really helped me when at once during my career, I was laid off. And I, you know, a lot of people go through difficult times, but I immediately thought, okay, go back to the mission. 
what is the mission? I need to find something that's in the mission, in the same line of helping move education and entrepreneurship forward. Um, I've also had other, you know, multiple setbacks. Setbacks set you back, but as long as you have that clear mission statement and that clear focus on the North Star, you can, you know, always stay on track even when the winds of life blow you off track. Yeah, it's so important to share those stories of failure uh, in mm-hmm. quotes that are then learned from and become yeah. those key accelerants. So I, I can't uh, tell mm-hmm. you how thankful I am for uh, you sharing that for our listeners. Uh, but let's uh, let's get into the topic of financial acumen. When mm-hmm. you hear the phrase financial acumen, what, what does that mean to you? So I've learned over the years that financial acumen has many levels to it. But at the kind of top level, it's understanding revenue and company profitability, you know, and I can actually tell from talking to startup CEOs, do they really know their revenue to one decimal point, two decimal points? Do they understand the profitability? Like there really is like I grade CEOs after I talk to them. What is their financial acumen? It's actually one of the top 10 criteria we use for investing in companies. Uh, And then if you go beyond that level, it's do you understand an income statement? Do you understand the balance sheet? Do you understand cash flow of your company? Um, you know, keep going even further. It's the unit economics and gross margins of the repeatable product or service that you sell. You know, and if you even go multiple levels beyond that, there's you know equity and understanding equity. There's debt, understanding debt, revenue quality, revenue repeatability. There are multiple, multiple layers, and I'm still learning. Myself, even now, after having looked at probably 500 businesses pretty intimately over the last 20 years, that there are more things to learn in financial acumen. You can never know it all. Yeah. Well, I I really love how you pointed out the concept of unit economics, uh, because many managers in their individual roles uh, do not understand how the inputs and outputs of what they're doing along, what their teams are doing along the value stream, they're part of the value stream, how that actually works at a unit level. So, uh, you know, if you're, if you're a mid-level manager, understanding those unit economics and getting familiar uh, with that is, is really, really, really important. Um, as an, yeah, yes. As an impact investor in the education space, let's leverage your insights there and take the conversation way back to its roots. So in your assessment, What needs to change in primary and secondary education in your region of the world to improve financial literacy, which is the precondition for financial acumen? Sure. So I think a lot about math. There was a whole track at the Gates Foundation when I worked there on investing in improving math outcomes. Bill Gates really cares about math, and so do many people at the Gates Foundation. And, and I have kind of my own uh, opinion on this that I probably should write about someday. But basically, the American math system is really oriented to educating people in kind of esoteric math, trigonometry, calculus, algebra two, which are really important if you're going to go on to a career in engineering or science. And, you know, STEM careers and technology careers are very important in our modern economy. So those courses are super important to like 10, 20% of the population maybe, but 80, 90% of the population 
are all wondering, what the heck does this have to do with my future life? Nurses do not need to understand calculus. If you're going to become a business person, you actually need to understand finance and accounting. And so there should be classes that are about understanding money, making money, understanding finance and accounting, statistics, data science. These are the really important skills that are needed in the 21st century for most of the quality jobs. And we don't have a whole lot of that going on in K-12 education in the U.S. So I've seen how this can change in another subject area. So back in 2012, uh, computer science was an elective that you could take in, uh, in K-12 education. And it didn't even qualify as a STEM course, even though the T in STEM is technology. So back in 2012, you could take a computer science course, but it was treated like music or art. It was just an elective, just kind of a side thing you decided to do. So a number of people got together and they created code.org. And code.org's goal was to like up-level the skill of all the people in K-12 education, especially to really understand computer science. It was started by people like you know, Bill and Scott McNeely, this, you know, founders of Google, many really important technology people founded that nonprofit. We need something similar that's kind of like finance.org or money.org that actually would help make sure that these math courses that are geared towards understanding money, uh, you know, building wealth, creating businesses, understanding how to work in a capitalist economy and make money. These are skills that kids really want. They're hungry for these skills. And, uh, and we really need a, a national movement in that regard that honestly doesn't exist right now. You and I maybe should co-found it. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think so. You know, I, I love your answer here, uh, to that question. Uh, you know, and you know, my, my own personal feelings on this subject is that, uh, we need more experiential, uh, mathematics, mm. uh, more applied uh, mathematics. And the, uh, you know, I'm I'm a I'm a huge math uh, geek, uh, big big <laughs> fan of math. math nerds you know, to the tenth power or whatever. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, but for me, it was the uh, process of being able to estimate uh, mm. using mathematics to uh, to estimate because all of life is uncertain, and mm-hmm. uh, mathematics education actually does us a disservice in uh, there there is a specific answer to uh, to every uh, question. And in the yeah. real world, uh, there aren't specific answers uh, to to right. everything. You can certainly create a specific answer, but almost everything that you do in the business world, is based on estimation and that's, you know, calculus is all about estimation. So why not teach calculus with the mindset of you're going to live your entire life uh, estimating stuff. So this is how you apply calculus in, uh, in, est- in field estimation. Uh, hmm. Same thing with statistics. I, I found statistics. Totally. Uh, both uh, maddeningly difficult, but also an eye opener uh, that, uh, you know, nothing is a certainty that, that, that was the eye opener for me, but you know, we're, we're both math geeks, so we could talk all day about this, but totally, <laughs> totally. probabilities, statistics, I yeah. would rank calculus third, most important of those three, yeah. but those are all really important skills that are sadly barely touched upon in the curriculum right now in the K-12 curriculum. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, 
let's move on to the collegiate level. So mm -hmm. let's run a thought experiment. You have a university chancellor right in front of you right now. Mm -hmm. What mm -hmm. advice do you give to them to set their graduates up for success in the workplace as it relates to uh, financial acumen? Sure. So I was really lucky that I skipped over this in my bio that I got to work for three years at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And one of the things that we used to do is go and talk to uh, boards of trustees and college presidents about what were the most important things they could do to help improve their graduation rates, to uh, get students more prepared for life in the 21st century. And this was something that a lot of them really wanted to hear what the research said. And Gates funds a lot of research in this area. And so one of the most powerful innovations at improving college graduation rates is this college orientation course. It's really you know, kind of a simple thing, but many colleges have adopted it where all students need to take a college orientation course that teaches you how to be self-directed and you know, schedule your studying, how to choose your courses, how to kind of direct your academic experience when you're at college, plan out things so that you graduate on time, really basic. And this actually improves graduation rates by 10%. Now, I think almost everybody knows that college graduates earn a million dollars more per year, 900,000 to a million dollars more per year than people who just graduate from high school. But there's like more levels to that that people can be taught about. And so there should be a course that I would call career orientation that would help students understand and 91% of students say they're going to college to get their career off on the right start that helps them figure out you know, what major should you choose. There's even a concept of meta majors, like some people go towards sort of STEM and science courses. Some people go towards kind of econ and business courses. Some people more the social sciences. But even choosing that meta major in your first year as opposed to being undecided is really important and can put you on track. And then there are career domains. Like when I went to college, I actually wanted to be an astronomer and I, there was a big book there. It's like, I looked in it and I was like, how many astronomers are there in the U S it was like, there are 2000 astronomers. And if you didn't go to MIT, Caltech and like a few other schools, you couldn't become an astronomer really. And I was at the university of Virginia and I was like, Oh my God, I wish I'd known this before I came here. I can't become an astronomer. Um, but now we actually have way better data than that old book from 30 years ago that I used where you could actually find out if you go into these majors, these are the types of careers. These are the types of jobs. We can demystify the whole thing so that, and that's what that career orientation uh, course could do for students. And I would highly recommend that to every college president. I already have recommended it and I'm recommending it again today. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's wonderful advice. And before we leave this topic, I just want to make sure that I heard uh, correctly at the, at the outset of that college graduates earn about a million dollars more over their career. That's than, correct. It's, it's 900,000 to a million. There's a little bit of debate there about that hundred thousand, but it's still, you know, that's a, a lot of money and you earn 500,000 more if you get a graduate degree, especially in computer science, business, applied graduate degrees are very valuable. Yeah. So. Well, we're going to take a really short break uh, for an important uh, commercial message uh, for a book that will uh, is a life-changing book. And we'll be right back. Thanks for listening to the Balancing Act podcast. I'm Andrew Tempty. In my book, Balancing Act, Teach, Coach, Mentor, Inspire, I explore the characteristics required of leaders who must find balance between strength and vulnerability, confidence and selflessness, 
passion and measure, and leadership and followership. Balancing Act is available today at Amazon.com. And we're back. Our previous mini-series uh, touched on the importance of communication and storytelling in business. How does improved financial acumen help non-financial leaders and managers improve their communication and storytelling skills? They're definitely linked. So I think of it as the language of business is customers and numbers. And so a lot of times when I talk to startup companies and we're trying to figure out who to invest in, I ask them who their best customer is. What's their you know, ideal customer relationship that exists today or that you want to build in the future? And having CEOs walk through this, I pay attention. And some of them use numbers in those stories and others don't. And I always coach them to use numbers, the ideal customer relationship. Does it start out with a contract of $5,000, $50,000? How does it grow over time? What is it per employee? What's the value you're delivering? And I found that CEOs that are really good at weaving a tale of kind of maximum customer satisfaction or delighting the customer that know the numbers and can weave them into the story that that matters a lot. And not just for attracting investors, but for inspiring employees. Then you can let employees know these are the types of ideal customers we want. Why do we want them? Because we can deliver this transformation for them for this much money, and then we make money, and then they get some type of ROI or return on their investment from working with us. And most people can understand that simple logic train if you couch it in the form of a story. Yeah. Well, yeah, storytelling is just absolutely essential for for any leader. Uh, the the I, I love how you brought that answer right back to the customer and mm-hmm. made that connection uh, right back. You know, I I talk in my in in my first book and in my forthcoming second book about having a maniacal focus. Uh, on on the customer and uh, wrapping storytelling and the numbers of what a customer uh, looks like uh, numerically, I think, is a really important uh, message. Um, real softball here. What advice do you have for business leaders to build financial acumen in their teams? Yeah, well, just listening to you talk about the maniacal focus on the customer there. It reminds me that you and I grew up in Kaplan's culture together, and uh, Kaplan was exceptional at defining and prioritizing KPIs, these numbers that everybody needed to pay attention to and focus on. Um, And this is really something that's in my DNA now, and I definitely, I'd already learned it in business school, but it was really drilled into me at Kaplan that everybody could look at the data dashboard and know how many students were taking tutoring programs and how much money had been collected today. It's sort of like all the retail shops that can run their little tape at the end of the day and know how many sales there were. And you can track those little ebbs and flows. And these data dashboards are super important for leadership teams to make decisions, to define strategy. So the real advice for business leaders is to define those KPIs Make sure a number of them are dollar sign related um, and then use that data in leadership meetings, defining strategy and and try to push it all the way out to the people. It helped us that uh, managers of tutors and teachers could see themselves how much in sales were generated a day. 
and they could form their own theories as to, wait a minute, why did we have this huge spike on this day? And why do we have no sales on that day? What's going on there? And the more you can distribute that out uh, to people to have power over influencing the numbers in their own business life, the more you really can transform an organization. So I think I learned a lot of that from you, actually, too. So. Well, uh, thank, thanks for that, Jason, because it, it is, you know, measurement and transparency uh, is a much bigger influencer on company culture than a lot of people give it uh, credit for. When mm-hmm. when uh, you're managing through the mud of uh, obfuscation, as I as I like to call it, if you're if you're trying to uh, navigate through a very opaque uh, landscape, and data is used as a weapon or as uh, mm-hmm. or the data is some big secret. Uh, right. what you're going to get culturally from that is a culture of mistrust and everybody yep. looking over their shoulder. So, you know, we're, we're talking about financial acumen here, but we're, yep. we're really talking about, uh, corporate culture. Completely true. Completely true. And I, I've seen this, even, I worked at Microsoft in the middle of my career. I forgot to mention that part. And Microsoft had a culture of product excellence which was sort of different than Kaplan's culture of KPIs. And Microsoft could have definitely benefited from everybody knowing the numbers, imbibing the numbers. That's why I still think to this day, Microsoft versions one and two, and maybe even version three of every product are complete flops because they're tech-driven from the beginning and product-driven, and they don't have any idea what the sales or uh, you know, customers are thinking. It's completely divorced from the customer in those first couple versions. And it is until version three or four that everybody can see dashboards like Kaplan. And then suddenly Microsoft gets its act together and ends up winning in various markets. Yeah. And just a reminder for our listeners, uh, Microsoft for a company like Microsoft that is uh, really big can weather those kinds of version one, version two storms yeah. before. Startups cannot have three versions in a row <laughs> you completely just, fail and be yeah. disconnected from the customer. No. Right, right. Yeah. Well, the vast majority of businesses do not have that luxury. So that, that's cool. That's right. Uh, any specific course or program recommendations that uh, you would uh, provide to leaders? Uh, you know, there is a little bit of a gap in this area, and I know you're working on addressing it. I would recommend business school for people who want to earn in the $100,000 to $1 million category if you go to one of the top 15 business schools. I was lucky to go to a top business school, and I do recommend it for the top 15 to 20 business schools, even though, you know, the consensus out there is you don't need business school. Well, it's not really true. You do need it if you want to be in upper echelons of leadership and you don't get there right away in your first career choice. Um, Otherwise, I've seen a CFA work really well for people. Um, And that's if you're a self-starter, if you can study great study habits, CFA is excellent. Um, If you're in investment banking or financial modeling industries like VC or private equity where I work, um, Financial Modeling Institute, Wall Street Prep, Training the Street, all good programs uh, to look into. Sometimes companies will pay for those for you. Um, That's the optimal if you can get a company to pay for you to either go to business school or do one of these programs. Yeah, it you know you talked about the gap that exists here. You know if we're if we're talking about the average uh, individual within a larger mid sized company, there there really is a there really is a gap there, and there's just this 
ad hoc uh, world of finance for non-financial managers that uh, you you might get a great instructor and you might get a terrible uh, uh, consultant come in and you know provide a provide a program like that. So the, there's definitely gap. Going Take it back to where you can get it, even just a little bit. Yeah, uh, maybe we do have to. Uh, you and I have to start money.org or something. Something like that. <laughs> we do for real. <laughs> yeah. So my final question is this. Let's play another thought experiment. Let's assume that you have a non-financial professional in front of you who's convinced themselves that they hate math and all things accounting and finance. How do you coach them to bring their anxiety level down and help make things a little less intimidating and scary? You know, this has come up a decent amount of times in my career, especially with people who think of themselves as teachers or educators first. And so I sort of diffuse it by saying, well, can you add and subtract? And they always say, of course I can add and subtract. And I say, well, you know, 80% of people give up on math when they get to these advanced math, like calculus, trigonometry, algebra two is a major barrier. And the, that brainiac math is not needed to be successful in business. Um, To be successful in business, you need to, Apply the adding, subtracting, dividing, and multiplying skills that you already know and are good at. And by the way, spreadsheets can help you with this, and you need to become good at spreadsheets. Um, And these are skills that you can do, and you can be successful. And uh, at at Kaplan, I actually did run a little course to teach everyone who was a tutoring leader in different parts of the country how to read P&Ls. And even now, to this day, like 10 years later, people are coming back to me, that little course you taught was so valuable. It was really helpful when I became a store manager of a gap or when I went to a different organization afterwards, because these understanding how to understand the P&L is a really important skill. And you don't need to know more than math and know how to read that statement. It actually is, uh, it's sort of at the sixth to eighth grade level of math. It's not like elementary school. It's a little bit hard, but you can learn it. Well, Jason, this has been a wonderful, wonderful conversation. You know, I I admire you for some of the work that you do outside of business. And uh, you're on the advisory board of the Smithsonian National Zoo, which just fascinates me. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what's going on at the National Zoo? (laughs) Sure. I definitely love the zoo. I do feel like this is a, uh, you know, kind of a passion project on the side, so to speak. But uh, the, the zoo contacted me because of my expertise in education, and they want to figure out how to leverage their kind of you know, ability to change conservation and affect climate change positively throughout the world. And, I, you know, kind of, I guess, funny story is that right now the zoo is very focused on the pandas, as they always are, because the pandas, the giant pandas are a national treasure. They were gifted to us by China many years ago. And it's kind of coming up on a big anniversary. We just had the uh, the 50th anniversary of the gift of the pandas. Actually, just happened a couple months ago. And we have to figure out what happens next. The, the pandas are actually scheduled to go back to China, but they've become a really important part of, I would say, almost like global geopolitics. Yeah. So right now, we're negotiating to have the pandas remain with us for another 25 or 50 years and I think this will be, you know, a really important moment when that announcement 
You know, it's going to take multiple months. This is this is almost like a State Department level negotiation here yeah. to get that renewed. And hopefully that will help, you know, uh, thaw the relations a little bit between the U.S. and China and help for a better world. Well, if the pa- if the pandas can uh, bring us to a better place, then that's wonderful. <laughs> and uh, and it just FYI for everybody, uh, my nickname growing up uh, was Panda. Uh, that, that, that was that was my nickname. We should have a link to the panda cam on the uh, notes for this podcast. Yeah, yeah. I, I should put it on andrewtempty.com and <laughs> yeah, the, the, I lo- love the panda cam. Uh, Jason, it has been just phenomenal working with you again. Thank you so much. Uh, my name is Andy Tempty. We've had Jason Palmer on the show today. Uh, please find us on your favorite podcast app. Uh, like, subscribe, rate, share, all that fun stuff, and uh, and get everything else uh, that you need on andrewtempty.com, and we will talk to you later. Truly really a delight.